everyone. I'm so excited. I mean, you might, you sort of understand now, but I'm very excited because this is session one of summer camp. We love uh, summer, this is the coolest. Normally summer camp finishes um, on a Saturday and we try and rally and come to church on Sunday, but I actually think this is a great way to start camp in the house with all of you. You get to see our young people and pray for us and we're just so excited, yes? Come on, Ignite Tribe. We are so excited to be here this morning. We're going to have such a great uh, time at camp. So welcome to session one of camp. You're all now also attending summer camp. <laughs> um, no, I'm really excited. Uh, this morning I get to speak about, so uh, last week Pastor Brad spoke about Luke 15. And I can say that without uh, flinching at all because I, when I was in youth ministry, uh, even just as a youth leader and uh, Pastor Brad was still a youth pastor, I think probably four anyone else who was in youth at this time could agree, maybe nine months, every time Brad opened his Bible to speak to us, he read out of Luke chapter 15. Like, it is his favourite. And I was thinking, well, if I'm going to share from my favourite scripture, what am I going to share? What am I going to talk about? And there's like a list of uh, some of my favourite stories. And if my sister was here this morning, she would be able to tell you which ones are all my favourites. Um, Paul and Silas in prison and they sing in the jail. I love that. Uh, the resurrection of Lazarus. Maybe I thought maybe I would speak about that. Or... Um, what else do I love? Oh, the walls of Jericho falling. I just think that is the best story. Everything ever written about the Ark of the Covenant, like, I just think it's so interesting. But actually what I decided and what I landed on this morning is um, a scripture that actually I can see really changed my life. Um, I'd like to think that every time I open the word, I'm open to the spirit and God is at work and it's changing my life. But this one, I know for sure, changed my life. It changed the way that I understood God and his love for me. And it changed the way that um, I understood what God was doing for me. And it changed the way that I understood what God was calling me to do for others. Um, completely changed my life. So this morning, we're going to read uh, the story of the woman at the well. And there's some really good wealth in there. There's some really good nuggets of truth in there. Um, but perhaps we're going to skip over some of your favorite parts of the story. I, I'm just going to share with you what jumped out to me when I read the story. So maybe a slightly different uh, perspective on the woman at the well than you've seen before. So we're going for John chapter 4, verse 4. I should have told you that to start with, so you had a little minute to find it. John chapter 4, verse 4. And we're going to read uh, together. So it says at the start of, whoop, turn that up the right way. It says um, here at the start of verse four, now he had to go through Samaria and he came to a town in Samaria. That's Jesus. He is the Jesus in this story. Uh, now he had to go through Samaria and he came to a town in Samaria called Surakai, Surakai, uh, near the near the plot in the ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired from the journey, and so he sat down by the well. And it was about noon. In verse 7, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And then in brackets it says, His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are Jewish, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then in brackets it says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I love when there's brackets in the Bible. In this, I don't know, it's probably not in every translation, but in this translation there's brackets in the Bible and I love it because to me it's like, don't miss this important piece of information. Don't miss this important piece of information. The really important thing that we can't miss here is that 
Jesus was alone at the well. He didn't have his disciples with him. And he was not supposed to be speaking to the woman. He was alone at the well. And he wasn't supposed to be speaking to her at all. So some of you probably know this and some of you maybe don't have a total handle on this. So I'm just going to give some context to, uh, to why he probably shouldn't be speaking to her and why she was also alone at the well in the middle of the day. So uh, generally, uh, the middle of the day is not a good time to go and get water because it's quite hot. Does anyone know when the hottest parts of the day are? Like what hours it is? 12 and 3, is that right? I think so. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. Generally. So the middle of the day with a hot sun beaming down is absolutely the wrong time to go to the well. In fact, most of the other woman, women in this community would have come in the morning when it was a little bit cooler to get water for the day and take it back to their community to come to the well. But this woman, she's here at the well in the middle of the day by herself. And the reason that she's there by herself is because she's outcast in her community. And um, As we read on, you'll see um, she's had a bit of a tumultuous life. She's made some maybe not so great decisions and she's come to a place where now she uh, has and so much shame or has been so ostracised from her community that she doesn't come in the cool morning to get water from the well. She goes in the middle of the hot day by herself. By herself she goes to the well in the middle of the day because she doesn't fit in with her community at all. She's not like them, she's not one of them. So not only is she a woman and a Samaritan and Jesus is a Jew who shouldn't be speaking to her, she's also an ostracised woman. She's also a sinful woman at the well by herself, Yeah. So some context to the story. So then we read on in verse 10, it says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you to drink, you would have asked him if he would, give you living, would have given you living water. <laughs> I love this. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw and draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well to drink from himself as also his sons and his livestock? I love this because she seems just a little bit sassy. And I can relate to that. I don't know, anyone else relate to a sassy woman? Maybe not, but a sassy lady in the Bible, I love them. She's a little bit sassy to Jesus. Like, oh yeah, how are you going to get water out of the well? You don't even have a vessel. Like what? What are you talking about? Here's the thing. Uh, as we read, we'll see, continue to read this section, we'll see, is that regardless of her sassiness, regardless of her sinfulness, regardless of the fact that she is a woman, which just at that time was so unacceptable for him to be alone speaking to her, he values her in the conversation they're about to have. He places value on who she is. Jesus speaks to her as if she has value because she does. They have this conversation and he shares some truths with her. Um, we'll just, let's just read it. In verse 13, Jesus says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. And he told her, Go and call your husband to come back. And here we, as the reader, start to see a little bit of, of the brokenness that this woman is carrying. He told her, go and call your husband to come back. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands. And the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. 
And the woman says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that there was a place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming that has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father and the Spirit in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers our Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshippers must worship Him in spirit and truth." Now, a lot of you think that is the real gold in this story, that section of scripture, and you're probably right. That's where the really good, juicy bits are, and Pastor Brad does the best unpacking of this piece of scripture I've ever heard, so if you have questions about that, ask him. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the fact that she is a sinful, broken woman at the well in the middle of the day and Jesus has this conversation with her that is deep and meaningful and theological and penetrates to the heart of who she is. He sees her sinfulness, he sees her brokenness and the way that he values her does not change at all. He doesn't dumb it down. He doesn't think she's not worthy to hear this truth, this gospel, this good news. She's not worthy. He doesn't think that at all. He values her and he he gives her a conversation. He has a conversation with her that probably is like she's never had a conversation like that in her life, I would say. He values who she is. He places value on her life regardless of all the things that he knows. It makes me think of um, one of the very famous scriptures, and God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While she is still a sinner, her life is valuable. And so then the encouragement for us this morning is, while we are sinners, our life is valuable. While we are in the midst of brokenness, our life is valuable. While we are struggling and in the storm or in the desert dry place or in the valley, our life is valuable to God. We are not more or less valuable based on any outward expression of who we are. It is all about God and his feeling toward us and his love toward us. We are valuable in the eyes of God. Before we even looked like a good Christian, God died for us. Before we dressed right, before we spoke right, before, before we looked like everybody else. Um, Ignite Tribe, we're all here in our t-shirts, but before we all came in our matching t-shirts, before we fit in in this community, Christ died for us. Before we knew the cultural norms of this community that we're a part of now, Christ died for us. Our life is valuable because of how he loves us because of how he loves us, not because of any outward expression of who we are. People have value. We have value. You have value. So then the next thing, if we keep reading, in verse 25 says this, um, and then the woman said, I know that Messiah, in brackets, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Oh, I love that. So good. She has an encounter with the presence of God. Jesus reveals himself to her. Haven't we, to be here this morning, calling ourselves a Christian, declaring our salvation, had an experience like this, where God revealed himself to us? 
where he showed his love to us, where he covered us with his forgiveness. She has an encounter with the presence of God. And I love alliteration, so get ready for this one. There is power in proximity to the presence of God. Do you want to write it down? I'll do it again. There's power in proximity to the presence of God. When we get close to God, when we see who he is, we see more of who we are, we see more of who he is calling us to be. That begins the transformative work in our heart. So here she is, and she has this encounter with Jesus, and he just flat out said, I don't know if it says anywhere else in the Bible where he's just like, yep, that's me. He makes a lot of like claims and suggestions, and we infer a lot, like, oh, he's, yeah, he seems like the son of God, for sure, for sure. But here he's just like, yep, yeah, that's me. To this woman at the well, in the middle of the day, yep, I'm the Messiah. Yep, that's me that you're talking about. And then the most annoying thing happens. The disciples come back. So we don't get to hear what she says in response to that. It's not recorded in scripture what what she says or what she thinks or what she feels because 12 burly working class men show up with lunch. Guys, they couldn't, five more seconds. Do you know, they do the polite thing, though. They don't question why, why she's there or he's there or why they're having this conversation. But anyway, we don't get to hear. Anyway, I just think, like, imagine if 12 really loud, obnoxious people came in now. Even that would be like this 200 of us in here and that would still be annoying. But just two people having a quiet conversation and then 12 ruckus boys show up. Although I do think we can sort of infer a little bit maybe what she was thinking. Uh, If we read in verse 28, it says, Then leaving her water jar, because she doesn't need it now. She leaves her water jar and the woman went back to the town, the place where she had been absolutely ostracised until this point. She was not really a part of that community in, in a productive way. And she said to the people, Come and see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. She had had a revelation of the power of God. She had been transformed by proximity to the presence of God. So much so that she went back to a community where she had felt an outcast for so long and told them about her experience. She told them about her experience. So the first thing that I grabbed from this story is that people have value. You have value. We have value. And the second is that there is power when we are in the proximity to the presence of God. Yeah? It changes us. It transforms us. And actually, that sort of leads through into the next point. Because after she leaves Jesus, um, uh, Jesus and the disciples do have a little bit of a conversation. Um, So in verse um, 35 it is, he says, Don't you have a saying that it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. I don't know about you. I love agricultural analogies. The Bible is full of them. I don't know that much about gardening, but I feel like I have to learn a little more when I'm reading the Bible. And again, this is a context thing, tribe. The people in in this time who, who the word was written for understood this kind of concept right away. We don't always understand these concepts right away, but I love agricultural analogies. Speaking about the harvest... I don't know about you, but it draws my mind straight to another scripture uh, that is about the harvest, which we find in Matthew chapter 9, that is, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. 
Here's the thing I think, the third thing that I grabbed from this story. People need to hear your story. Your story is important to God's story. People need to hear your story about the transformative work that is happening in your life after your experience in the presence of God. People do not need to come to church on Sunday. That's like super controversial. People don't need to come hear me preach. They don't need to come hear Pastor Brad preach. They don't. They need to hear your story, your personal story, about what the power of the presence of God is doing in your life. This woman goes back to her community and speaks to people she has known her whole life about what God is doing in her, about about this man she met, about who Jesus might be, yeah? Jesus probably could have gone down into the town and saved them all himself, but I think doing it this way, sending her in to tell her story, and when we see what happens next, it's amazing. People are really quick to say, um, we are called to be world changers, yeah? But when I think of world changes, I think of my world, my people, my sphere, my community, the people that I know, my world. Those people need to hear my story. You have people like that who need to hear your story because there is power in your story when you share what God has been doing. Let me, in verse 39, this is the evidence of what I'm claiming here. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony because of what the lady that they knew their whole life had said, even though she was an outcast in their community, many of them believed in him because of what she had said. So, in verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, Now we have heard it for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Because she was brave enough to share her story, other people came into a relationship with God. Other people were able to experience the power of the presence of God because of her story. Yeah? Mm. It's good. There is power in her story. There is power in sharing what you have experienced. There was power in her sharing her experience. There is power in you sharing your experience. When you share your story, you will see the power of God working through you in the way it worked through the Samaritan woman. And lost people will come to know who God is because of your story. So, the three big ideas is this. People have value. There is power in proximity to the presence of God and that there is power in your story of faith. I love it. Personally, what a challenge. Further than that, if we just push it a touch, I love alliteration. I've made that very clear this morning. I love alliteration. The way that I remember the three key points of this story and the way that revelation came to me when I read it is like this. Belong, believe, behave. Belong, believe, behave. What God is doing for you and and what God has done for the Samaritan woman here is also for others. Not just for us here on a Sunday, but for others in our community, those in our world, in our sphere. And so when we think about this in the framework of belong, believe and behave, in the beginning, 
Jesus gives value to the Samaritan woman. We see that she belongs in the family of God. She is welcome at the table. She is accepted into the family of God. She belongs there. Even when she's a bit sassy to him. Then, and for me, the order here is so important. She belongs in the family of God. Then she has an encounter with the presence of God and it transforms her life. Her beliefs begin to change. She belongs, her beliefs change. And then finally, the last thing to happen is that her behaviour changes. She goes into the community and she shares her story and she continues to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. But it goes in that order. She belongs and is accepted by Jesus. He has, gives value to her. He speaks to her. He respects her. He listens to her. They have a conversation. Then she has an encounter with him. She believes that he is who he says he is, and then her behaviour starts to reflect her belief. Sometimes, I think, whether we do it on purpose or whether we do it just subconsciously, I think, honestly, it's something we need to be more purposeful about. I think sometimes, maybe not you, me, sometimes for sure, we give people the impression that to belong here, you have to behave correctly. To belong in our community, you have to clean up your act to belong in our community. Your behaviour has to be different. You have to dress right, you have to memorise your scriptures, you have to never say a swear word again in your life, you have to um, always be kind, you have to, um, and, and the Christian uh, journey starts to look like one of behaviour modification. Come to church and we will teach you how to act better. We'll teach you how to act better. And then maybe one day you'll start to believe like we do. So you come here and start acting like us and then eventually maybe you'll believe like us. And then one day in the future, you'll belong. You'll really belong because you will be like us then. That is, so not, that is so not what I see in scripture. That is so not what I see of a God who opens wide the door and says, come, come, come. I died for all of you while you were still sinners. There is an opportunity for you to all sit at the table and belong. And so when it comes to reaching our community, when it comes to influencing people that we know in our world with our story of how good God is, first they come and they belong. There is room at the table for everybody. People come into our community and they belong because that's what God did for us. There is room for everybody here. And then, because of the power of proximity to the presence of God, they experience who he is. They experience the love that we have all experienced. They get to get in on the salvation and the forgiveness and the graciousness and the mercy of God that we have all experienced. And then, they have a story to share too. They have a story all their own. And finally, their behaviour start to be transformed to look more like Jesus. But it is the last thing to come. It is the last thing to come. I love my Ignite tribe. How are you guys? Tuned in? Youth ministry, oh, I was going to make a claim. Maybe not. Youth ministry is the messiest ministry in church, but it's probably kids. (laughs) Youth ministry can be just the messiest. Like, um, we have lots of hormones, in youth ministry, there's lots of tears, there's lots of um, wrestling, the occasional fist fight. We love, we love the mess of ministry because behaviour, behaviour is the last thing to change. 
God is not interested in behavior modification. He is interested in life transformation, an internal work of the heart that leads to, leads to us being more loving, more gracious, more kind. You know what I mean? Like we can't, we can't do those things in our strength, but some, our own strength, but sometimes we put off this idea that we can and people come into church and think, I could never. I could never. And so the big challenge is this morning that people have value, you and me, but also those people in our community, and they belong here. There is power. Have you got it written down now? Yeah. There is power in proximity to the presence of God. When we experience who he is, our beliefs begin to change. And finally, we all have a story. We all have a part to play. Our behaviour is the last thing to come. And what a beautiful time that is. That's the challenge that I see in this scripture. How do we accept that for ourselves and our own life, but then how do we go into our community and share that with others? I encourage you and challenge you in the next week to think about what your story is your story of salvation, or if that was a while ago, your story of what God did in your life last week. Are you looking? Are you conscious of what God is doing? So that when the opportunity comes to share that, you can. Because as we make space for God's power to work through us, we'll have to knock out that wall to fit people in here. When we make room and we say, everybody belongs here, then I think we will really see an incredible move of God's Spirit in this place.